Happy Pancake Day. You know, the fascinating part about that, uh, as we turn to today, we're going to focus on and uh, continuing our series through the lens and the miracles, uh, the seven recorded miracles of Jesus in the book of John. And today we're going to look at the miracle where Jesus takes five loaves of fish, and, uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplies it and he feeds multitudes. Well, we thought we would just take a risk this morning, and um, I, we brought five pancakes this morning. And we brought two pieces of bacon, and I said, hey, Ben, would you pray over this? Let's see how faithful you are. Let's see how much faith you got. And uh, sure enough, everybody got fed. So that's such a bad joke that it was funny, right? Is that, what it, is that why you're laughing? <laughs> uh, have I introduced myself? My name's Kevin Russell. I'm the Groups and Discipleship Pastor here at Genesis. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And as I said, we're going to look at the miracle when Jesus fed probably over 15,000 people. But before we look at that miracle, let's do a quick review. Jesus began his ministry by going to a handful of early followers, and he said, come and see and follow me. And he spent time with them, John 3.22 tells us. And really, if you look at the chronology of Jesus' life, in the first 18 months of his ministry, the first year and a half of his ministry, His primary focus and emphasis was just laying a relational foundation on which to build a movement that would change the world. And about a year and a half into his ministry, he goes and he kind of kicks it up a notch. And he goes to a handful of followers and he says, okay, now follow me and now I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he takes them through uh, a season of training and he's beginning to show them what it looks like to make disciples. And, And then about two and a half years into his ministry, after a night of prayer, Jesus goes and he chooses 12 men to be the leaders and the apostles of his movement. Most people are surprised to realize that it was two and a half years into his three and a half, four-year ministry before Jesus chose the 12. And he chooses the 12, and he immediately starts doing some leadership training with them. And one of the things he does is he sends them out two by two to the various villages and towns around Galilee. And he sends them out by themselves. Jesus doesn't go with them. They go out, they minister, and they teach, and then they come back. And our story today in John chapter 6 is going to pick up when the 12 return from that mission trip, if you will, and from that ministry experience. And they're going to return, and they're actually going to rendezvous, and uh, likely in a a city called Tiberias. Why don't you look at this map with me? This is the Sea of Galilee. And if you look on the left side, kind of towards the bottom, you'll see the city of Tiberias. That is likely, somewhere around there, is where the disciples rendezvoused. Well, we're told in Mark 6, the disciples returned and they gathered around Jesus and they reported all that they had done and experienced on their mission trip. But they also shared some bad news with Jesus. While they were out doing ministry, they received word that John the Baptist was beheaded. And keep in mind, several of Jesus' early followers were first followers of John the Baptist. And so this was their former teacher, their former mentor and friend. And so the news of his death must have been devastating to them. And it must have been devastating for Jesus as well. John the Baptist was his cousin was his friend, was his partner in ministry. And so you can imagine this moment where Jesus and the disciples on one hand are really excited about what they're experiencing God doing, but on the other hand, they just received this horrifying news. And so what what does Jesus do? Well, 
we're told in Mark 6.32 that they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. I find this so encouraging because it's such a good example for us that when life gets stressful, when difficult circumstances arise in our lives, what a great example for us to follow to get away and spend some time alone with Jesus. If you're in a season of your life right now where you're just, the stress is mounting and there's a weight on your shoulders and your heart is overwhelmed, I want to encourage you, get alone and spend some time with Jesus. This is what Jesus' plan was to do. He wanted to get over there and get to a quiet place and get some rest, and he wanted to process with his disciples everything that was happening. Certainly they wanted to spend some time in prayer. Luke's account of this event tells us that they went across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. Let me sh- let's go back to the map. So Tiberius is on the bottom left, right? You see Bethsaida, the top right? This is where they're going to head. And so Jesus is going to get in a boat with his disciples, and they're going to head up to uh, Bethsaida across the lake. Now, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that my wife and I, I have, I've had the privilege to go to Israel a couple of times, and um, by far my favorite place in Israel is the city of Jerusalem. It is a majestic place. I mean, I, I just think the city of Jerusalem is the center of the world. I mean, with everything going on in the news, I think it would be hard to convince you of that. But my second favorite place in Israel is the Sea of Galilee. I got a few pictures. Uh, so here's my wife and I, Paige, uh, in front of the Sea of Galilee. Isn't it beautiful? And, um, and then we also, uh, I actually got a chance to ride in a boat and go out on the Sea of Galilee. Here I am. Don't, uh, don't make any comments. Um, <laughs> you know, hold on, go back, go back, Russ. So here's, we get on a boat and we take about a 45-minute ride on the Sea of Galilee. Can you just imagine what that's like? Oh, man, you talk about life-changing experience, being on a boat on the body of water, the same body of water that Jesus himself and his disciples spent time on 2,000 years ago. Man, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Let's go. Uh, and so we, we took, uh, we took uh, last slide, Russ. And then uh, there's another beautiful picture of Sea of Galilee. And look, I, I wanted to show you the mountains around it, right? Because it says in John that Jesus and his disciples went up on a mountain, at the Sea of Galilee. Do you see that? Look at those spaces around there that they could have easily traveled up. And so this is the place where Jesus uh, uh, chose to do his ministry. This was kind of the center of his, his ministry, his ministry headquarters, if you will. I mean, who wouldn't want to, who wouldn't want to, who wouldn't want to set up there? Raise your hand if, you want to, if you'd like for your office to be on a lake. How many of you would like to raise your hand? Yeah, like, He's no dummy. Like, he's, he's, he's a genius. He's like, let's see. Uh, where am I going to do ministry? How about a beautiful lake? You know, the only disappointing part for me is that they didn't have jet skis at the time. So, um, but, so Jesus and his disciples head across the lake. They get to a quiet place to be alone. They want to get to a quiet place to be alone. But here's the thing. Uh, the plans kind of get spoiled, okay? Unfortunately, some people see Jesus and the disciples getting in the boat and going over on uh, the lake. In Mark 6.33, here's what it says. Many who saw them leaving, many, many people saw Jesus and his disciples getting in the boat, and they recognized who it was. By then, Jesus is well known, and his disciples too. They've been out ministering. And they ran on foot from all of the towns, and they got there ahead of them. Let's look back at that map one more time. From Tiberias to Bethsaida uh, was about 
four miles by water, okay? So it's about a four-mile boat ride, ride by water. But to go f- around the lake, which is what most of the people would have done, it would have been about a nine to ten-mile walk, okay? And so this is what happens is they set off from Tiberias, they head to Bethsaida, and people start traveling around all the way up to Bethsaida. Now, here's what's interesting. In John's account, in John 6, 4, he tells us that the Jewish festival of Passover was near. Here's what this means. Passover was the most significant of all the Jewish holidays, okay? And it was a festival when Jewish people would remember and celebrate how God spared their ancestors from death. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, on the last night before Moses rescues the Israelites out of Egypt, they were instructed to put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over their home, and they would be spared. And every year during Passover, hundreds of thousands of people would make their way to Jerusalem to attend this festival. And so now, go back to the map one more time, Russ. Oh, you're, we're here. Okay. <laughs> now, here's the thing. There was a trade route called the Via Maris that ran through this region. And it was one of the primary routes that people would travel. And the route would run right along the Sea of Galilee. It would, it would come down out of the north. It would hit at Capernaum. It would run along, along the Sea of Galilee. And at about Tiberias, it would shoot off and go in a different direction. So here's the picture. Jesus' disciples get in the boat and they go across the lake. Somebody sees it and they begin spreading the word. And as, a, as several people start traveling around the lake, there are hundreds of thousands of people at the same time traveling to Jerusalem to attend Passover. They see this crowd. Word begins to spread, hey, we're going to see Jesus. Jesus is on the other side of the shore. So people traveling begin to kind of take a detour. And they say, well, okay, we'll follow. And they follow them up, and all of a sudden, a crowd literally begins to swell. And what happens when they show up? Well, we're told in in the Gospel of Mark, what's interesting is all four Gospel accounts record this event. We're told in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Luke tells us that he welcomed them and that he spoke about the kingdom of God and that Jesus healed those who needed healing. And so what we have here is a picture of a day where Jesus is hoping to spend time alone with his disciples, but instead it turns into an organized, chaotic day filled with ministry and teaching. And now we get to the miracle. It gets late in the day, and the disciples come to Jesus. Uh, scholars think that they were probably now, uh, they ended up, because the crowd showed up, they probably end up ministering for several hours, maybe six to, uh, six to eight hours. And so it's late in the day, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, hey, we need to send these people home. It's getting late. There's nothing to eat around here. Uh, let's end the day. Let's stop the ministry. Let's let them go get something eat, to eat. And this is where Jesus takes his 12 leaders and begins doing a little leadership training with them. And he flips it around on them. And he says, why don't you feed them? Look with me in John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. 
Jesus gives Philip a little test. Why is he testing him? You know, God will often use legitimate needs in our life to test us. And a, a test in school is designed to reveal how much knowledge that you have acquired about a particular subject. And so Jesus seems to be testing his disciples to see how much knowledge or rather maybe how much faith they have acquired to this point. This is a faith lesson for them, but it's also an obedience lesson for them as well. In Mark's account of this conversation, we're told that Jesus instructed them to go see how many loaves of bread they could find in the crowd. Well, the disciples do as they're told, and Andrew comes back and reports to Jesus what they found. Look at verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, this is Simon Peter's brother. He would have been one of John the Baptist's early followers. He's there, he goes, and he finds this boy, and he says, Here's a boy, here's a boy with five small barley loaves of bread and two small fish. But how far, how far will they go among so many? They find this young boy who's willing to offer up his five loaves of bread and his two small fish. Many scholars believe that this was not the only food in the crowd. There were lots of travelers. They would have brought food with them. Their hometowns weren't very far away. And so we don't know for sure whether there was more food in the crowd or not, but here's what we do know. We do know that the disciples found a boy who was willing to offer up what he had to Jesus. And that's point number one in our notes today. God will only bless what you offer him. God will only bless what you offer him. The boy was willing to offer what he had to Jesus, and it says that he had five barley loaves. Now, barley, uh, barley bread was the, was the most eager of all, uh, meager, not eager, was the most meager of all breads. It was a bread of poor people, and, and it just wasn't, value, wasn't very valuable, wasn't worth very much. And the fish, the people, most scholars think that the fish was probably two sardines. I mean, we're not talking about, like, grilled salmon here, right? I mean, this poor kid is bringing just a little bit of crackers and a couple of sardines. And I imagine, I imagine that when the disciples brought this food to Jesus, realizing it's not only an inadequate amount of food, but it's also a low quality of food, I imagine they thought, there's no way Jesus could do anything with this, right? You ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you ever feel like what you bring to Jesus you don't have you don't have very much to offer like there's not much he could do with what you what you can bring to him? Maybe you don't feel like you have much financially to offer Jesus. I don't know what he could do with with my resources. I don't have much. Maybe you don't maybe you don't feel terribly gifted at times. Or maybe you don't feel like you've got the most best personality or you're not organized enough or Maybe you're insecure and you think, what, what, could, what could Jesus do with me? Or maybe you come to him and, and your, marriage is, your marriage is broken. And you think, what, what could Jesus do with my marriage? Like, what could he do with this? This is a mess. What could he do? We often focus on our inadequacies, don't we? We often focus on what little we have instead of the sufficiency of Christ. It's often at the point of our inadequacy where God extends the grace and the power we need. It's at that point when God does his miracle. And maybe this morning you need to be reminded of what Jesus told the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said this, My grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's what Paul said. See, it's not about what you have or what you don't have. It's not about what we can do or what we, what we can't do. It's about who God is and about what he can do. And so what does Jesus do with this? Well, let's look back at the text in John chapter, 10, John chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus says, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. There's the miracle. He did the same with the fish. When they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, go gather up the pieces that are left over. Let nothing, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Filled, tw filled 12 baskets left over. He sits, everybody, he sits everybody down. We're told there was 5,000 men. It was probably likely uh, when you added women and children, we're talking about over 15,000 people. Uh, the Indiana Pacers, the, the Banker's Life Fieldhouse, I think is what it's called, arena, whatever, holds like 18,000 people. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine sitting in that arena, packed crowd, no one has any food, or, uh, no, and Jesus steps in and goes, okay, we're going to feed everybody in the arena. Like, what? Like, this is, this is amazing what he does here. Like, how does he do that? I, I'm fascinated. Like, I want to know, like, what did it actually look like? Don't you, don't you want to know? Don't you think that sometimes? Like, okay, there were the bread, there were the fish. Like, what did it actually look like? Did he have to tell everybody, okay, close your eyes, and then he pour over the miracle? Like, I, like, what did he do? Like, what did that look like? Did he just, like, take the bread and, like, stretch it out? Like, I mean... I don't understand. I wish they would have told us. Give us some details. <laughs> Jesus sits down and he prays. He has them sit down and he prays for them. He likely prayed a common Jewish blessing that a father would typically pray at a meal on behalf of his family. It was a way for the father to exercise his responsibility to care for the physical and, more importantly, for the dad to care for the spiritual needs of his family. And so when he prays this blessing, this is what he's doing. See, it wasn't about the food. That's why we don't get the details. Because it's more, it's so much more than meeting their physical need. Jesus is trying to meet their spiritual need. Remember, a lot of them weren't too far from home, right? Tiberius is only uh, nine or ten miles away. Capernaum, a very large city, plenty of food would have would only been four or five miles away. We're not talking about uh, a very far distance. And so they could have gone get, to get some food. They, and Jesus would have known that they would have gotten hungry again. And see, just like the other miracles that Jesus performed, this is what we're learning in this series, is that it's never about the miracle. The miracle always points to something greater. Jesus was revealing a God who has the compassionate heart of a loving Father. Now, look what Mark's account says of this miracle in Mark 6, 34. It says, when Jesus landed and he saw the large crowd, he had what? Compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't say these are like people without pancakes and bacon. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. What he's alluding to is their spiritual need. This is why, this is the motivation behind why Jesus did this miracle. See, and here's the thing. Everyone in this crowd should have remembered another time, hundreds of years before this, when God faithfully shepherded their ancestors. And it was when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. And when they got out of Egypt, their ancestors disobeyed God. 
and they disobeyed Moses. And because of that, God said, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and that's what they did. But even in the midst of their disobedience, even in the midst of their wandering, God faithfully shepherded them. Listen as I read Deuteronomy chapter 8, referring to their ancestors in the wilderness. Uh, verse 2. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Listen, why? To humble and to test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. Do you see the connection? Which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart, know then in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Do you see the connection between what God did through Moses in the wilderness to the Israelites and what Jesus is doing for his people here on this mountainside? They should have remembered God's faithfulness. And I'm certain that Jesus was hoping that this crowd and that his 12 disciples would connect the dots. But they didn't. But let's not make the same mistake. Let us remember God's faithfulness. That's point number two today. We need to remember God's faithfulness in our lives. Sometimes this is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to remember the various ways that God's been faithful to us. We face a difficult set of circumstances in our life. God shows himself faithful. And then a few months later or a few years later, we face a new set of challenges and we somehow forget to remember what God did for us in the past. Are you in a place right now where you need to remember God's faithfulness to you in the past? If I were to ask you to write down this morning a few ways that God has shown himself faithful to you, what would you write down this morning? If you were to look back in your life over the last several years and you were going to recount God's faithfulness, what would you write down? You know, I think there are some simple ways we can be intentional about this. I would encourage you to grab a prayer journal if you don't use one. Begin using that. And one of the things that you can do is just write down all the ways God's been faithful to you. I'll do this from time to time. If I'm in a place of discouragement or if I just am in a place of dryness in my prayer life, I'll sit down and I'll begin writing all the ways God's been faithful. I'll start with the fact that God created me. That's pretty good, right? I mean, let's just start there. He created me. I'm thankful for that. He also died on the cross for me and that he pursued me and he sent people into my life. I'll write down specific parts of my story or specific ways that God has opened doors of opportunity for me. I'll write down how he, he's brought me a family, how he, he's been faithful to encourage my heart through difficult circumstances, how he has grown me, he has matured me, how he has gotten sin out of my life. I'll, I'll write down all the different ways how God has been faithful to me. And it, it's inevitable. Whenever I finish writing that list and I look at it, I take a deep breath. Oh, and I remember, yeah, God is a faithful father. He's a good father to me, and he's a good father to you. And maybe this morning you need to remember that God is a faithful father. Look at a few of these passages in Psalms. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God. You're slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The next one. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He's a good, good father. And his love endures forever. And his faithfulness continues through all generations. 
And finally, Psalm 108.4, For great is your love, higher than the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. And so Jesus takes what, they, what little they have, these five barley loaves and these two small fish, and he multiplies it and he feeds everyone with plenty to left over. And the people are understandably amazed by this and by what's happened, and the crowd is stirred. And look at their response back in John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. After people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they begin to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. People are impressed. And they realize he's a powerful prophet. (laughs) But they totally missed the point of the miracle, didn't they? They want to make him king. They want to take matters into their own hands. They're thinking in terms of the world and not of heavenly things. And Jesus is like, that's not the point. And so he withdraws from the crowd. And Matthew, Mark's account tell us that Jesus dismissed the crowd and his disciples went in a boat across the lake to Capernaum. Now, they'll not actually make it all the way across the lake because later that night a storm will blow in and then Jesus will perform another miracle when he walks out on water to the lake. We're going to address that next week. But... Here's what happens. The next day, the next day, the same crowd of people that have been fed by Jesus realize that he's still in town and they go looking for him and they find him in a synagogue at Capernaum. And archaeologists have excavated uh, a synagogue right there in the middle of Capernaum. They believe it's probably the one that, that Jesus taught many times. And they find Jesus there, the crowd does, in the synagogue. And this time he responds a little bit differently than he did yesterday, the day before. Look at John 6, 26. It says that Jesus answered them. He tells them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. He's saying, you're coming back to me, not because of the spiritual thing I was trying to teach you. You're coming back to me because of this physical need I met. He's saying, you missed the point of what I was trying to teach you. You thought it was about the food. It's not about the food, he's saying. I'm much more concerned about your spiritual needs. He says, listen, this is why I did the miracle. Look at verse 35, John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, don't you understand? I was trying to teach you that I am the source of life, that I'm what you're looking for. I am the one your heart and your soul has been searching after. He continues on a few verses later in John 6, 53. He says to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you'll have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Can we just be honest? That's a little bit weird, isn't it? That's a bit of a weird response. And, and let's just say this, too. Sometimes Jesus is a little weird, right? I mean, this could be an encouragement to some of you. I've been around some of you. Some of you are really weird. I am, too. <laughs> Why would he say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? 
especially after the, he's performed this amazing miracle the day before. The crowds are stirred. They're behind him. They want to make him king. They come back the next day looking for him, and he delivers maybe one of the most confusing, difficult, hard to understand, quite frankly, repulsive messages that Jesus ever delivered. He says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Ah, oh, that's disgusting. Well, that's very confusing, and it's so confusing that verse 66 tells us that many people turn back and they no longer follow Jesus. There's a turning point in his ministry. It says many disciples turned away and they no, no longer followed him. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks them, look at this. You want to leave too? You want to go? He looks at the 12 leaders and he says, this whole crowd just left. Many disciples have deserted Jesus. And he looks at them and he says, you can go too if you want. That's a tough question. Here's what I imagine. I imagine Jesus' heart is broken. His heart is absolutely broken because the crowds missed it and they didn't understand. And they didn't understand that the man who could meet their greatest need their need for eternal life was standing right in front of them. And look how Peter answers this question. Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are we going to go? Where else are we going to turn? Who else is going to meet our greatest need? And that's our third point today. Jesus alone offers eternal life. Jesus alone offers eternal life. You know, what's interesting is that most of the crowd, as they left Jesus and the disciples there that day, they would have went on up to Jerusalem for Passover. They would have continued their journey, and they would have went to the festival. But Jesus didn't go. In fact, this was probably the only time that Jesus did not go to Jerusalem for Passover since he was 12 years old. Here's what's interesting. It's one year from this point. One year, 12 months later, at the next year's Passover, you know what takes place? Jesus sits in a room with his disciples, and he takes a piece of bread at that Passover meal, and he says, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Eat it. And then he says, this picks up a, a cup of wine. He says, this is my blood. This represents my blood. It's going to be shed for you. Now drink it. And then later that night, he's going to get arrested and within hours, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, is going to go to the cross and going to die for you and for me. So when Jesus was sitting on that hillside telling that crowd, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what he was saying is, listen, you're headed to Jerusalem to find what you're searching for. You're, you're headed to Jerusalem to find what your soul is searching for, but I'm telling you, I'm it. Here I am. I am the Passover lamb. I am the source of life. I am the answer. Peter said, where else are we going to go to find life? Let me ask you today. Where are you turning to find life? Some of you are looking for life in all the wrong places. And you need to be told that this morning. Stop turning and stop searching for life in things of this world. 
There's only one source of life, and his name is Jesus Christ. Your soul and my soul searches for eternal life. And you know what eternal life is? John 17, 3, Jesus tells us this. He says, this is eternal life. He defines it for us. And this is on the last night he's with his disciples. He says, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He says, here's what eternal life is, knowing God. And it's not about a head knowledge either. I think you've heard me say this. This is one of the most powerful words, one of my most favorite words in all the Bible. Is that word know there? The word is gnosko. And that Greek word gnosko means to be intimately acquainted with. It means to have a personal encounter. It means to have a personal, intimate friendship and relationship. And so what Jesus was trying to tell the crowd when he fed them with that food and what he tells his disciples later that day and he tells his disciples at the last night and the last supper and what he is telling you and me today is this. What our souls are hungry for and what our souls are thirsty for is intimate friendship with God. And intimate friendship with God is going to be the only thing that brings you life and brings me life. And next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. And some of you have never made the decision to declare Jesus as Lord of your life. Some of you have been looking all over to many different places and searching for life in other places, in other people other than Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, you need to make the decision. Today, this afternoon, this week, you need to make the decision that Jesus alone is going to be your source of life. And you need to get baptized next Sunday. You need to express your faith and your commitment and your devotion to him by being baptized. And you need to draw a line in the sand and you need to step, uh, you need to make a decision and say, I'm going to be a Christ follower. Regardless of what the crowds do, I'm going to say, just as Peter did, where else am I going to turn? I know that Jesus is my source of life. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent him to die on the cross for our sins. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to this reality this week, that even today, even right now, whatever it is you're speaking to us in our hearts, God, that we would listen, that we would obey. I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded today of your faithfulness in our lives, God. And I pray that we would, we, we, you would remind us today, God, that you alone are our source of life, God. And if there's anything else in our lives, that, God, that we're turning to, to find life, I pray, Father, we would turn away from that and we would turn to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.